0: Welcome to the Behind the Goals podcast, the podcast about fans, for fans and by fans. Please welcome your hosts, Andrew Jenkin and Alan Russell. Hello and welcome to Behind the Goals episode... Six? 17. 17? 17. Wow, that's, that's, that's fine past. Yeah, they're uh, are
1: racking them up at a rate of knots.
0: I know, and having had to listen to my voice for the last, uh, <laughs> the last episode for a good 25 minutes, which I can only apologise for, uh, this week I'm going to uh, pass over to Alan, and we're going to be speak, speaking to you. Not because we haven't got interesting guests to interview. Oh, we've got great guests. Um, but, they're coming up in future yeah. weeks. Uh, but this week we wanted to shine a light on the SD Scotland Index that we first published last... July? Um, I think it was April or May. I think was it was it? before the end of the season last year. Which um, seemed to go down very well actually in terms of helping to just sort of add a bit of transparency over who owns Scottish football really and um, it was all built on the excellent work that you did with, not to blow smoke up your backside, but uh, <laughs> um, the excellent work you did with the Rafer over Supporters Trust, which is really where this story starts. So this episode is is dedicated to... to the sort of story behind it and where we've got to and sort of connecting the dots and I suppose looking ahead to what we're planning to do with it in the future. Yeah.
1: So this is, I guess this is one episode where I don't have to awkwardly shoehorn a Wraith Rovers reference
0: then because we're going <laughs> to start talking about that. Exactly. Yes. So <laughs> it's the
1: start of a journey rather than the conclusion.
0: <laughs> and it's... Um, yeah, and that's the best place to start, really, isn't it? There? There's two parts to the story, really, mm. and and it's always the good good place to start is yeah. how. So let's go back to when you first started doing the who owns what, which is what you've um first published which was basically looking at the ownership structure at rave rovers who i think it's fair to say have a more complex ownership structure than a lot of the other clubs yeah, in Scottish more,
1: Football. more than most and more than is necessary uh, i would i would argue mm. yeah so they we, we've had a we've had a complex structure for about um for 25 years or so since the, the first holding company was formed uh so for from 92 93 i think it was uh, we had the football club limited, and then a holding company was created, um, as a way of um, making more share capital available for investors, and also made it brought about a significant change in the ownership of the club, in that the first time, for the first time, it was owned by one person, um, a local guy, a local businessman who'd been involved for years, um, and is still involved actually. Um, uh, I'm not sure his exact involvement now. He's not a major shareholder, but he. Uh, is a sponsor, uh, he sponsors the, the South Stand where the Wraith Rovers fans sit at the Penman family stand, his name is Alex, Alex Penman um, but it was his money that uh, he wanted to invest in the football club in the late 80s and was thwarted uh, by the fact that uh, all the share capital had been issued uh, and there were three historical shareholders um, who blocked the motions to increase the share capital so he couldn't put any more money in the club uh, in equity, uh, wanted to put money into the club, wanted the club to develop um, wanted the club to get into the Premier Division, uh, which it did a few years later. Um, but that change in the ownership structure was to allow that investment to be made, but it it forever changed the structure of the football club. Yeah. So we had a holding company for for a while, uh, and then the club ran into difficulties again about ten years later, um, when ownership had changed hand a couple hands a couple of times. Uh, we'd been in the Premier Division a couple of times. Um, you know, which was the the Alex Penman dream. We'd been in Europe, three rounds of European competition. Um. We'd won a cup the, the season before that got us into Europe, um, but we overspent once we were in the Premier. Um, money was running out, uh, debts were piling up. Um, the ambitions were still there from those running the club um, to have us progress and to continue to compete at the highest level, uh, and the answer was to spend more money and mm-hmm. get into more debt, um, and that went on for a few years. We we kind of we struggled by it for a few years, and then in the early years of the two thousands, um, we got into serious bother again. Um, Another yet another change of ownership, and this time the owners uh, divided the on- divided the ownership of the stadium from that of the football club, created a property de- property development company. Um their, their their pitch for doing that, really, their way of justifying it was that banks wouldn't lend to football clubs at that time, um, but they would learn lend to, to other companies. Um there was a bit of vacant land next to Starks Park that they wanted to, to buy uh, and to uh, create a small training facility on they did buy the land, uh, but they didn 't get planning permission and i 'm actually not sure if you, if they applied for planning permission to the training ground, um, but they sold they sold that plot of ground again, and it 's now got houses on it
0: just now so, so what year was this
1: that was I think two thousand and two two thousand and three that we had the third company they split in ownership from the football club to the stadium. Mm-hmm. Um, so so then, this
0: is kind of at this point that there's a bit of ambiguity as to who, who owns what and...
1: Well, actually, at that point, it was still fairly simple. Okay. Um, it was, there was a, really, the holding company was 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 the company that controlled the football club. The historical shares in the football club limited company itself uh, were almost incidental because the power really resided in the, in the holding company. Then there was a separate company to own the stadium, but it was largely owned by the same people, uh, or at least the major shareholders all had stakes in that. And it seemed to be fairly benevolent. Um, but those maneuvers to try and get more money into the club didn't really pay off. We kept on generating more debts. Um, and then the the owners who'd come in um, in that in that last ownership changed uh, wanted out. Uh, and there was also sort of talk they were threatening to, to apply for planning permission for Stark's Park to build houses on it um, if they didn't get their way, if if nobody bought them out. So we started in 2004 a campaign to buy them out, to basically do a community buyout.
0: So this is the, the Rafe Ravers the of structure, which was formed in...
1: Uh, 2001 we formed, 2001. when the club was in shaky ground. But... Um, uh,
0: this is really your first major That's leadership.
1: right. We weren't in full on crisis in 2001 but in by about 2003 mm. uh, the relationship with the owners had deteriorated I, and I mean the relationship between the, the the main owners and the other directors and other major shareholders at the football club had de- deteriorated. Uh, I think our I think it's probably fair to say that our relationship with you know, those major shareholders was never all that great. We didn't really fully trust their motives and um agree with their visions for the club. Um so we not just the not just the supporters but um some of the other major shareholders who who had been around for a long time um Alex Penman was one of them um he was uh, He was on the side of of the local community and trying to effect the buyout of the those those two newer shareholders um three guys from uh, they're they're colloquially known as the west coast gangsters don 't think they 're really gangsters, but they 're from the west coast, and we didn't trust them so it was a it was an easy badge to try and motivate people around. Um, so, a lot of major shareholders and the supporters got together, formed the Reclaim the Rovers campaign to raise funds to to buy a, that ownership stake. Um, we had I can't remember the target we put on it at the start, but we probably needed twice as much money as we actually raised. Mm. Uh, I think we raised about eight hundred thousand pounds, um, which is a huge sum. Of it's, money, huge, really. it's huge. It's um, huge. Not all from the supporters. The support, supporters' stake and that was about I think hundred ten hundred twenty thousand pounds. Yeah. But they raised enough money that we could buy out those principal shareholders um, um, but in doing so, without buying out the whole ownership of the club, we had to form another holding company right well, we didn't have to, but we chose to that was that seemed to be the easiest way of doing it, and the quickest way because the the, the clock was ticking and I think it was the thirty first of December two thousand and four um the takeover went through you know, it was like literally at the last minute mm. you know one major shareholder one major um, component of that bid. Uh, fell apart, so some money didn't materialise, but we had just enough money to, uh, to buy, over, buy out that major shareholding. Um, we created a company called... Oh, no, what on earth was it called? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is this good? A, no. uh, we created another holding company called New Wraith Rovers Limited okay. uh, as the vehicle for that takeover. Um, and, on, and on day one, the supporters owned, I think, 12.5% of that, that mm-hmm. club. And we had a seat on the board. Uh, of, of that company, we had a seat on the board. So that gave us uh, a a company structure that had that had four companies in it. It had uh, what was at the time called West City Developments, which was a property development company, which has since been renamed Starks Park Properties. The only property it owns is Starks Park, as far as I know. Um it had the newest um holding company called New Wraith Rovers Limited. We had Wraith Rovers FC Holdings Limited, which is the one set up in um in the um in the early nineties. Uh, and we had Rovers Football Club Limited, which was the company it was set up in I think the nineteen forties uh, as as the first limited company. So it was four companies for mm. a for a very small provincial football club. Um, which
0: is huge. I mean, even just that's unworldly you know it's so uh complex that even you describing it i've almost lost track of all the different <laughs> yeah. companies and why they were formed so
1: yeah. you should be thinking, making notes so you can remind me i lose track of it as well so the, and the reason that we started the work on who owns what was yeah. after the takeover happened and it was publicized as uh it, the club's now owned by the community everything's great we were mm. saying well hang on a minute it's not we were underfunded uh, and any you know great visions that people had that this would clear the decks and we would be out of debt and we'd be in, in great shape financially aren't actually true because we still do have this complex structure because we couldn't buy out all the shareholding and convert it into one company we've now got four companies instead of one Um, we've got you know debt that still needs to be paid off we've still got the- issue of the football club not owning its its home it's the stadium that we'd we'd been in uh for um 120 years or so um so it's not as simple as it appears on paper when you when you read a newspaper headline and after a few months of asking of people almost every every Saturday at the at the matches people coming up and asking us so who owns the club now Mm -hmm. what about this holding company is that the same as the old holding company um I decided just you know basically write it down create Mm -hmm. some pie charts um to really try and simplify it, and so, and so
0: what year was this that you started? Doing that it? was two
1: thousand and six, I 2006. think, that we first published the pie charts. Mm. Uh, so it's probably more more than a few months of the questions, but uh, it seemed like a fairly short short period of time mm. that we had to field these questions and then come up with a smarter way of of uh, of, of answering it. And actually, what we did, we held a, an open event one Saturday lunchtime before a match uh, in the back room of a local pub, um, and invited people to come along and just you know talk about the ownership structure, talk about you know you know the takeover what had happened, who the players were, um, not the football players, but the players in the takeover were, uh, and so on. And I presented these these pie charts at that meeting. And, you know, as soon as we gave people a piece of paper, four, four pie charts on it, um, they didn't, didn't ask any more questions about who owns the club at that point. Mm. So it was, it was almost tick in the box, job done. Yeah. We, we all now know who owns the club.
0: Um, I think that's an important uh, point, because actually... Um, Often when you read, and I think this is something that Andrew Jennings was talking about when we spoke to him, was about there's business journalists and then there's football journalists and the football journalists don't really talk about this aspect of football. And it was actually, it was also a piece in the Football Pink talking about this aspect of football doesn't get covered a lot. Yeah. They just assume people don't care. But I actually think the problem is that it can be very complex and a lot of technical language. And no one ever really tries to break it down in a very linear um yeah. simplified manner that people could understand without yeah. having a degree in you know yeah. <laughs> business and economics
1: yeah yeah no i think that's i think that's right um and and time and time again over the years i've seen headlines in newspapers about other football clubs announcing a takeover or announcing that uh, there's the club's going to be owned by the supporters and they actually look mm-hmm. you don't have to look very very far in between the lines or behind the lines to see that actually it's, it's not quite as simple as that mm-hmm. um and, but as soon as those those very you know simple statements are out in the public domain, you know people believe that's that's the the, the entirety of the situation. Mm-hmm. It's not to say that those things aren't true. It's just that you know in in, in real life things are a little bit more complex yeah, than they are yeah. on the back page of a of, of a newspaper. Front pages of a newspaper they might go in or middle pages of a newspaper they might go into more detail. But the average football fan you know isn't going to read the business pages to the same to the same degree of detail as they do the sports pages mm. if, when they're wanting to find out about their football club. And it's almost a bit of a no-go area, as, as Andrew mm-hmm. Jennings is saying uh, to the business press. It's, there's there's more important things to talk about than, than, than football.
0: Yes. So. But, it, but So were you the first trust that you're aware of that kind of did this breakdown of ownership? And really, I know The Guardian often publish a kind of just look at the debts and of clubs mm-hmm. and the turnover. In and I, don't think, I don't think we were the
1: first to do, do that. I think we were the first club that had a complex structure to do this. Mm-hmm. You, you looked at the time at other football clubs. I was actually trying to find another club that had a structure like ours so I could ask them sure. you know, who, who owns Wraithrovers, but I couldn't find one that was as complex. But lots of trusts were publishing you know, just a simple table of who the shareholders were, and that's, that's really helpful. Um, actually, more trusts were doing that than the football clubs themselves. Um, so, you know, I I saw a big role of supporters' trust at that time, being in providing that transparency that wasn't available elsewhere, uh, and also a little bit in you know, a little bit more detail perhaps than you might be able to find um, you know, any, anywhere else.
0: Mm. And so over the years, that was two thousand and six. You've done sort of various in, you know incarnations of this yeah. of this report. How often? How many have you published since two thousand six?
1: I, I'm not sure, to be honest. I, I tried to keep it up. And certainly whenever, whenever there was a, a significant change to shareholdings, I would publish a new version. At least once a year, I'd, I'd double check to see if there was any changes. So I, I got used to going onto Companies House website, um, downloading annual returns as well as accounts. Up until that point, uh, as, as, a, as a supporters trust, I was only really interested in the accounts of the football club. I'd look at those to find out in you know, the financial health of the club. But I realised looking into this ownership structure that it doesn't actually tell you in the accounts yeah. who owns the club. Sometimes tells you who the ultimate owner is. In fact, I think it, I think it always should, but it doesn't give you the breakdown of the shareholdings. So I started looking at annual returns. So every year when that was published, I would double check to see if there anything had changed, and I publish updates. There were fairly um, simple documents that we 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 prepared at first. You know you know just a. Uh, a bit of description and some pie charts about the ownership structure but then over the years we started adding in some of the the narrative about how the club developed over the years so why is it why is the structure so complex when was the first holding company formed and why what was going on then what what was how were things going on the pitch um, was the club making a profit was it making a loss was mm-hmm. it done to finance uh, some developments things like that so it, it came up with a really a timeline to add to the pie charts that said, so here's how we got where we are Mm. as well as who who now owns the club. And that kind of evolved over the next five or six years or so. Um, And then I got got fed up with pie charts. um, If you speak to anybody who's a bit of a geek about data visualisation, they tell you that pie charts are horrible because they're... They give you an overly simplistic view of things um, and you don't see proportions visually, all that kind of stuff. So I thought there must be a a better way of doing this. The other thing that happened was um, I I developed this thing. And I don't think I've seen anybody else doing it, probably because it's horrible. um, But it was almost a a nest of pie charts. So it would have rings of pie charts around Mm. the pie chart to show the structure of companies almost building up. And it was great to do it, on the, if I did it on screen with a PowerPoint presentation, I could show it building up gradually. But if you just presented people this information as a lump, it was it was pretty difficult to follow. Um, and it was also incredibly difficult to, to update whenever there was any changes. Mm. Um, so I decided I would have to you know, find, find another way of presenting it. couldn't quite crack that nut, um, but I was trying, I was kind of searching for different formats for it. Uh, and then around about that same time, um, y- you called me up and asked me about the who owns what yeah. document and wanted to pick my brains about it.
0: Well, that's right. I'd seen your <laughs> your two thousand and it must have been two thousand and sixteen version of who owns what.
1: Could have could have been. I think uh, it probably yeah. was,
0: and I'd seen that on on your on your website. And at the same time, that was that was that really struck home to me because I didn't see any other trusts in Scotland really doing that. Um, I don't think I really saw any trusts across the UK doing that, Uh, looking at that level of depth of the ownership. And what also impressed me in the last version of it was the timeline to show, you know, a bit more and, and, categorised the the, ter- the amount of turnover and attendance and showed yeah. how things changed in yeah. the different leagues as well. So if yeah. you haven't seen that, I recommend you go onto the, the Rafe Rovers um, Supporters yeah, Trust website and, and have a look. Just yeah, the to...
1: 2016 version is still, I've kept it there as a bit of a historical artefact, yes. although we've moved to a new format now. The information's all still there.
0: Yeah, yeah. and I think it's just and really um, worth other trusts thinking about doing just to help their supporters more aware of who owns what. Um, I think as well as yeah. an educational tool but really worth uh, checking out and it doesn't really fit on A4 so you have to print it off on A3 <laughs> because it's, it's such a huge amount A4 of information or larger. and it was double-sided as well so <laughs> a couple of disclaimers in there but um, yeah so it was at this point that um, we'd been working with the Scottish Government SFA, SPFL and Sport Scotland on the, the working group around support involvement and looking at the kind of barriers to fans being more involved in owning their clubs and, and, and I think also fair to say not necessarily owning but having more influence and involvement in how those clubs are run um, and that working group which was uh, chaired by Stephen Morrow uh, came up with a number of recommendations that were um, approved by the members of the group one of which was around a supporter involvement award so that um, it was almost like a, a governance index and how well clubs were engaging fans and their ownership um, and decision-making processes. Unfortunately, that never really went anywhere, but there was a lot of good stuff that was developed from that in terms of how we would try and rank what clubs were doing. And a lot of recommendations ultimately weren't accepted by um, clubs for whatever reason. However, we as an organisation Sports support Scotland appreciated that a lot of these um, sort of tools and measurement tools... Um, were very valid still, and all, even though they wouldn't have been, maybe weren't accepted, should still be implemented, and yeah. and, and there should still be, and maybe us as an organisation, that's our role to try and help increase transparency of of governance and ownership. So we kind of um got in touch, didn't we, and had a few conversations about how we could fit in something wider to sort of look at all the clubs in Scotland, and then also apply some of these other indexes. So we then that led to the first publication of the SD Scotland um, index. Mm-hmm. which you spent a lot of time doing the <laughs> <laughs> visuals for. I did a lot yeah. of the data on the uh, the involvement part yeah. and, and you spent a huge amount of time, I yeah. imagine, trolling companies' house and uh, all this information is publicly available. So it's not that's like right, we... Yeah. Uh,
1: I, think, I think that's one of the strengths in it as well is that although this information is publicly available, it's very, very difficult to navigate unless you're used to doing it. Um, and I got myself... I I accepted the challenge. Uh, I thought I was re- I was really interested in doing it. It wasn't you didn't have to twist my my arm too much, but uh, I accepted the challenge knowing it would be a lot of work. Um and and the amount of work, um kind of gave me shudders a little bit. But I thought, well, if it doesn't go anywhere, we don't have to publish it. But I was interested in it. I was hmm. interested in finding out a little bit more. Uh, and I've got a slightly obsessive <laughs> personality that when I start some something like that, I can't put it down until it's done. Um. So after I, I think I, I think it was when I got to about 14 clubs in, I thought, I'm a third of the way there. I can't stop now. Uh, uh, and I tried right. I tried to do the difficult ones first. Actually, it turned out they weren't the difficult ones. Um, but I tried to do the ones that I thought would be hard to find information out about first. Um, uh, and once I'd done those, I thought, I've broken the back of this. I might as well keep going with. Well, this Well, that's now. right. I remember you
0: did. You did come to the office one day and you showed me how to do it. And I think I was tasked with doing what, <laughs> championship clubs or something. Yeah, and I then a week later, you said have you done it, I oh, said, sorry <laughs> I haven't got around to it. So, sorry, uh, I've done it. <laughs> we'll,
1: take, we'll take a division each at first, see how we get on, then d- yeah. then divvy up the other two, and then uh, yeah. When I realised that
0: you were much better at it than me, yeah. I, uh, I left you to it. Uh, and I
1: think I, I think the once it it's, it almost works better if you're just if you're just taking it on. Uh, as a single a single person task because you get into the routine of doing sure. it and it, after a little while I, I would say when I had a, a few hours free uh, of the day i thought right i I'll, I'll do a few more and once I got into this into the swing of it, it was you know, ten or fifteen minutes per club um if the information was all there, some of them it was a little more diff- a little bit more difficult to find um Some of the annual returns that were published at company's house aren 't in a in a form that 's very easily read mm. um, not quite handwritten but not far off it. Uh, so I'd have to find pieces of software that could convert a PDF into a readable document, put it into Excel, clean it up, and all the all the rest of that that, that dull stuff. Um, but on the simple ones, it's actually very difficult, very easy to find the, the the information once you get started. So I I got got myself into a bit of a routine for doing that, and I also put all the inform all the all the key information into a single file. Um, and I started, and it's, it's something I'm glad I did early on because I wouldn't like to have to go through 42 clubs and all their holding companies, et cetera, again, to to find this out. But I, I started you know, writing down their company number and the date when their na- next annual return was due at that point and stuck that in my file. Only only later I kind of realised just how big a step that was because that gives me really a to-do list mm. uh, and allows us to keep it up to date. So... Um, I also signed up on Companies House to get alerts from each of the companies Mm. so that if, for example, uh, who published today, there were some updates from Albion Rovers um, today that came through, pops up into me, into my inbox, says there's some new information about Albion Rovers. This time it was just a a new director or something I've been been appointed. But when something pops up into my my inbox and says a confirmation statement's available or or a set of accounts is, is available, I can just go click the link, takes me straight there, and i can see almost at a glance if things have changed um so it actually becomes you know relatively easy to keep it up to date Uh, unless there's you know major major changes to a club
0: yeah so from that we were able to take almost well you put together a powerpoint presentation didn't you completely interactive one which is available on our website and we combine that along with the recommendations and the other index so now if you go onto the sd scotland index so if you go to scottishsupporters.net and it will be under fan representation sds scotland index and you can go to your club and you can find out who owns what the governance structure ownership structure of that club but you also see um the additional recommendations that we've added in there to the kind of indicators so gotcha. about fan involvement and um do they publish the directors of the club on the website yeah. um do they have an slo um do they have a fan on the board uh, i can't remember what else we had uh,
1: do they engage in structured dialogue structured with the supporters yeah. um do they publish their financial data yes uh, and listing listing the directors of the club on the website um and uh, what's the there's one that nobody ultimate does ultimate benefactor ultimate benefactor is there as well um but the one that no clubs do at the moment in Scotland, do the club publish the number of board board meetings held that's right and and the minutes or, or the details of what was discussed mm. so no clubs do that that was one of the recommendations in that uh, yeah, in, the in that study
0: um, yeah. which the, you can find the report if you want to see the full report and the recommendations on the link to the the same web page on the index if you're interested in going yeah. through and working out how we came to those um those those specific indicators easy for me to say so that so that's it that was the first index and yeah. and going forward we've sort of had we've had a few discussions about what we're going to do in, in future yeah. um versions of the index haven't we
1: that's right yeah um I mean as well as keeping it up to date um the, the one of the things that I'd really like to add into this is some uh some easily accessible uh measures of financial health. Yes. Um, Which
0: is gonna be difficult, isn't it? Yeah,
1: it can be difficult. I mean public different clubs publish um different amounts of detail about their about their finances and it's largely driven by what kind of what kind of company they are, what's the, what the structure is if they're publicly listed, um also their size. Not all of them are list, are, are limited companies, so some of them don't have to publish anything. Um, but my my goal really my vision would be if we could get something you know, quite tangible, some it's quite meaningful like wages to turnover ratio. Yeah, um, it's often said that sixty to seventy percent uh, of a club's revenue should be spent on on wages and on its player on, on player wages. Uh, that's seen as best practice, um, mm-hmm. and it's difficult to find out. You know, for from for a lot of clubs. Uh, how close they are to that that benchmark. Yeah. but it's available for some of them. Uh, t- tends to be the the larger clubs, uh, the Premier Division clubs, um, publish more more of the, that information in their accounts. Um, there was a piece on the Insider website yes. in the last month or two, uh, and they basically took six of the SPL SPL clubs. Sorry, the Premiership clubs. I have to remember the names. SPFL Premiership <laughs> clubs. Um, Branding. Six six of them who'd. Uh, who had published their accounts in this financial year already uh, and compared them there and also compared um, overall revenue, debt levels, and I think transfer uh, transfer activity. That's right. Uh, and it's a really, really you know, think p- good piece H- of work. I
0: think it was Hibs, Hearts, Rangers Celtic. Kilmarnock were Kilmarnock. there. Was it Motherwell? One
1: other. Might have been Motherwell.
0: I think it was, it um, was quite a good piece. Yeah, it was a good piece. Yeah, and, and, a really and they've really done a piece. couple of other things... In the past, as well, around kind of financial yeah. performance of clubs, which is worth checking out if you are interested in that. Absolutely. And it'd be, I, th- you know, I think you're right. I think we, uh, the problem is, I guess, that a lot of fans are going to want to compare their club versus other clubs, but every club's going to be different for yeah, whatever reason. Right. So it's really not about comparing. Yeah. And it's really, as you say, I suppose this is where the index came from, is adding the kind of the, the facts um, to the figures, if that makes sense, and adding the story behind yeah. where, the, where every club is, I guess. Yeah. Um, I think that's
1: right. Um, and that, that report from the Insider, that was. That that led to me following somebody on Twitter. Um, one of the people involved in writing that was a guy called Kieran Maguire uh, from University of Liverpool's football unit. Um, so he tweets. Uh, I think his Twitter handle is just Kieran Maguire, but he tweets his price of football, um,
0: which is uh, different from the BBC's price of football.
1: That's right. Yes, <laughs> um, and almost on a daily basis, just now he he seems to have hit a hot streak where maybe just lots of lots of new information has been published because it's it's this time of year mm. that a lot of clubs are publishing their accounts. But almost every day he features a, a different club, mainly in English football uh, at the, the top two divisions, although I've seen a few where he goes a little bit deeper. Today's, for example, was Chelsea, uh, publishing some, uh, some figures on their accounts, some pretty eye-opening stuff about mm. levels of debt. Uh, you know, so the £1.2 billion debt uh, from Roman, Roman Abramovich to the club um, has been transferred uh, and it's now owned to another company mm. that Roman Abramovich isn't a director of or wasn't the last time they published their ownership. So there are lots of interesting things there. You know, five-year trends in terms of transfer income, uh, wages to turnover ratios, the, the, the very things that uh, I'd like to build into the SD Scotland mm. Index. Uh, he, he does a great job of of, ex, of, of exposing them or reporting, not, not exposing them because they're in the public yeah. domain, uh, but they're reporting them, them to, and making them, them visible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's it's fantastic work that he does. Fascinating. I get distracted um, <laughs> at least four or five times a week um, by going down a little sort of rabbit hole of price of football stuff, mm. um, and it's it's really just fascinating just to you know just to delve in depth into a single club, but also to compare against other clubs, yeah. which is, is what, what you're saying a few minutes ago about you know adding facts to figures and allow some sort of comparisons, but also you know, understanding the differences between clubs that are that are there for other reasons rather other than just you know, financial performance mm. and so on um,
0: yeah. So that that's it, really, isn't it? I mean, that's uh, that's the future of the index, and I guess we'd really be interested in hearing from people. And I know for a fact that the index has been well received by, and even just um, we didn't really do a big um, sing and dance about it in the press, but there lots of lots of we got lots of press coverage particularly from local papers, talking about their club's ownerships. Yeah. So I know uh, Fife Courier did a piece about Rafe Rovers. The Dundee Courier. Sorry, the Fife Dundee. Fife Free Press. Right, Dundee sorry, Courier. apologies. And the Dundee Courier. <laughs> and Advertiser. They did a piece, and the Falkirk did one about Falkirk, yeah. and you got all the various <clears throat> local ones doing it about their local team, which was interesting. And lots of fans have sort of asked for their club-specific uh, uh, page, their slide on the, on the PowerPoint. Right. So... Um, yeah, it seems to be a positive thing that we've managed to to produce, which yeah. is always nice to see. And I guess we're just interested in developing it and making it better. I think I think
1: as well finding out what people who are reading the index would like to see in it. Yes. Um, rather than just from the perspective of of us of us writing and developing the index, we've got some ideas about it. But um, it's what would be what would be meaningful and useful to, mm. to to trusts and to other supporters groups and just other supporters in general uh, to understand about their clubs. Yeah. Um, I think also one of my hopes with it is that it would actually drive better practice yes. from the base of clubs. By almost putting, putting clubs into a league table, yes. it drives that competitive edge to want to be better than their rivals. I know one of the things that really uh, it, um, it got me a wee bit upset when I was putting together the index last year uh, when I went to Dunfermline Athletic. Uh, and I saw their ownership structure, and I saw that they are one of the got one of the highest proportions of supporter ownership in Scotland. That made me a wee bit jealous to start <laughs> with. And then I thought, oh yeah, but that's just their ownership structure. They've they they almost went to the wall, and they've been rescued, and, and good on them. And I know I know quite a few people in their trust, and they're really good people, and I'm really happy for them as well as being a little bit jealous. <laughs> but it's when I went to the engagement and the yeah. transparency index part of it. So those seven boxes that we that we looked to either tick across uh, and they ticked six well, of the boxes. Well, well got uh, the, the only club, the only box they didn't tick is the one that nobody ticks. Yeah. Uh, so they're almost the model for engagement and... Tran- um, this yeah. is almost making me my teeth <laughs> as I'm saying it. So <laughs> family I Athletic are the model for supporter engagement, transparency and ownership yeah. in Scottish football. Yeah,
0: yeah. God, I got, how much did the be? Trust
1: do? 20 or uh, something? The Trust... Um,
0: 'Cause
1: it's Let part me, of Pars United, isn't it? It's part of United. Pars United is the the Community, this, the interest, community interest, company. I, I, um, interest company. I think they own something like ninety seven percent of he's
0: the, got his for the feedbook it obviously it's uh, Alan's got I'll every get, single time. I'll, club get, I'll get the latest off. the
1: latest charts here. So Dunfermline, um yeah, Pars United CIC owns about ninety seven percent of the football club and all and the shareholders in Pars United CIC, um, the supporters club are the biggest shareholder with about twenty three percent. Right. So they have the biggest share, but it's still a minority share, which I would recommend as good practice. of yeah. Shared and stable ownership with a, I think with, with a strong voice for supporters in they it.
0: They've got two, two fans on the board as well. That's From right, yeah. Trust. Yeah. yeah. So there you go. That's And then you're right, because I think uh, that competitive element will spur, hopefully spur on good practice. Yeah,
1: I, I was I was wanting to put this in front of the directors at Wraith Rovers and say, look, Dunfermline are beating us. They've got six ticks. We've only got five. Yeah. Um, uh, what can we do to get the, the sixth tick? Um, and it's quite an easy one to get. The one that they beat us on is supporter liaison officer. Mm. So even the language that I'm using, they beat us yeah. <laughs> by having a supporter yeah. liaison officer. Yeah. Yeah. And so if we just had a support li- liaison officer, we'd have six ticks as well and they wouldn't be beating us anymore, yeah, yeah. Apart, from our, apart from on their ownership score. Um, That's
0: right. And speaking of supporter liaison officers, that brings us nicely to our sort of any other business for the today's session, That's which right, is yeah. that... Uh, very pleased to say Beverly has joined us from St Johnston although she's still SLO at St Johnston in a voluntary capacity so uh, she's joined the SD Scotland team and has got her feet under the table now eight days in nine days in yeah Yep. Yeah, it started last Monday. Yep. So um, she will be uh, joining us on the podcast. I've managed to twist her ear into how we got to the podcast in one of the future episodes. So uh, you, not, will, not, not you won't have to listen to just us. Yeah, not
1: everyone from Supporters Direct Scotland likes the sound of their own voice as much <laughs> as Andrew and I. But uh, we've twisted Beverly's arm. That's right.
0: And uh, But she's also um, heading off to Sweden for an SD Europe podcast. Um, Liaise event, which will be positive, and yeah. it's great that she's involved in that. They've got funding from um, Erasmus to do a kind of best practice network exchange for supported liaison officers, and I think really it's a, now there's a
1: two-year program, isn't it? It's a two-year, two-year program, program.
0: Yeah. and it's a really positive thing for us to be involved in. And I think um, where the sort of network of SLOs has come in the last couple of years has been really. Great, and that's down to people like Beverly and at Celtic and everyone else that's, that's been involved yeah. and done good stuff. So, um, yeah, you should... Uh, hopefully, every club will have an SLO in a couple of years. <laughs> we'll just have to get to that point, and they'll all have a tick next to their box. <laughs>
1: Fantastic. Uh, in other news uh, around football, the I guess the other thing that's been keeping the, the back pages busy, or one of the things that's been keeping the back, page, back pages busy, apart from just the football, has uh, been the developments uh, with... Ha- the SFA in Hamden mm. uh, it now looks like uh, there's a chance that the SFA will purchase Hamden Park from Queen's Park uh, I think an offer has been made and they're waiting on a response At least. Um, there's no inside edge here this is just what I read yeah. in the papers yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, it looks like the future of, of, uh, of Hamden may be as a uh, as part of the SFA's empire uh, ownership, mm. rather than as 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 tenants there, Park.
0: which will be a shame for Queens Park, I think.
1: But uh, we'll there's there's, all,
0: there's going to be two sides of the story, isn't there? But yeah, it'll be a shame for Queens Park, I guess, and and hopefully they get a good deal out of it as well. Yeah,
1: I think as one of Scotland's oldest football clubs, or possibly the, the, the oldest, oldest football yeah, yeah. club, um, the oldest football club that's still professional eh, definitely amateur. Um, oh, yes, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> senior <laughs> leagues, senior <laughs> leagues, not professional leagues, senior leagues. Uh, yeah, they are, they are some, they are something. Despite that we all, it being the SPFL, sorry,
0: yeah, <laughs> Yeah,
1: they they are one of the the, the part of the a big part of Scotland's football heritage, um, and like any club, we shouldn't we should shouldn't want to see anything that's going to yeah, harm their prospects, um, but they should be protected more more so than, than than any just because of their standing in, in, in the history of the game in Scotland
0: mm, absolutely well, well we'll wait to see what happens with that yeah That's I good. think the, I think
1: the timelines on them actually figuring out exactly what's happening and announcing it are, mm. are sometime in the summer mm. um, but it looks like it's moving in that direction
0: yeah. mm. Absolutely, so no, interesting we'll, 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 watch, we'll watch on um, well, thank you very much for joining us as ever. If you want to get in touch with the show. the email address is behind the goals at hotmail.com and you can get us on Twitter at uh, sup direct Scott or um, we actually have two Twitter accounts, but get us on that one just to yeah. avoid confusion.
1: <laughs> S-U-P-P, direct, Scott. Absolutely.
0: And uh, if you do want to check out the, the index, uh, the website is scottishsupporters.net and then you can go to the menu at the top. It says fan representation and it's one of the options. And until next week, see you then. Yeah, speak to you next week. Behind the Goals is a Supporters Direct Scotland podcast. You can get in touch with the show by emailing goals at hotmail.com. Or you can also tweet the show at SUP Direct Scott. That's S U P P Direct Scott.